Let's have a word of prayer as we come to this subject. Lord, we do thank you that we can meet in the name of Jesus. We thank you for the hope we have in Jesus. Pray you help me to speak now and guide me by your Holy Spirit into all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so it's the monthly prophecy talk, this month in prophecy. Uh, we're looking tonight at various things happening in the world. The theme which I'm put forward is Jesus Christ versus Antichrist, truth versus lies. So we're going to start off with a reading from John chapter 8, verse 31. John chapter 8, verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And later on in that chapter, speaking this time to those who didn't believe in him, why do you understand, not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. You're of my, your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there are no, there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. So you've got two options, the truth or the lie. If you believe the truth, you're going to be set free. And I believe that ultimately what we're talking about tonight, about, particularly about the end times, the end time war is ultimately a battle between truth and lies, between God and Satan, and between Christ, Jesus Christ, and Antichrist. Hopefully going to develop that theme tonight. Uh, just a little word on John chapter 8, verse 44. Uh, the traditional Jewish, traditional Christian use of that verse is it saying that the Jews are of the devil because they're against Jesus, and they killed Jesus, and therefore they are part of the Antichrist system. You know, people shaking their heads, I don't believe that. It's actually a terrible lie from the devil uh, because Jesus and the Jewish disciples were all Jewish, as was the writers of the New Testament, including the Apostle John who wrote these words. So what do we make about John's use of the word the Jews to start off with? Um, in Greek, the word is eudeoi, which is a Greek form of the Hebrew yehudim. Uh, literally, it means the Judeans as opposed to the other people who lived in the land who were Galileans, Samaritans, and the Judeans were the main group who lived around Jerusalem, so the religious leaders. And Jesus and his disciples were known as Galileans. In fact, Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth, who comes from Galilee. Uh, Galileans were a bit down market as far as religion was concerned, so you weren't expected to be a uh, great sage in the religious world if you came from Galilee. Certainly weren't expected to be the Messiah, uh, because the Messiah was supposed to come out of Judea from Bethlehem. And you read in the Gospel, actually, there was an argument about where did Jesus come from? Did he come from Bethlehem, or did he come from Nazareth? Well, he came from born in Bethlehem, but he actually grew up and lived in Nazareth, and so he was known as Jesus of Nazareth. And there's a kind of conflict in John's Gospel, comes out particularly in John's Gospel, between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders, especially the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, and basically, John uses the term the Jews to mean either the Judeans or the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, he's not saying what we understand ethnically Jewish as opposed to Gentile. Uh, <clears throat> and we read that the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem were actually quite hostile to Jesus. In fact, pretty hostile, some of them. 
Uh, not all of them. In fact, it says in Mark's Gospel that the common people heard him gladly. Common people in Hebrew is the Amharets, the common people who they said didn't understand these things. But Jews and Judea, Judeoi, is used primarily of the Judeans and the Jewish religious leaders. I think that helps to understand some of the dynamic in John's gospel. And while John is not being anti-Semitic here, he's not saying that the Jews are the father of the devil. He's saying, you people who are opposing me in this way, you are actually the devil. I'll explain that a bit more in a moment. If you go to John 11, chapter, verse 40, 54, uh, this is after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, and there is a, then there is a conspiracy from the Sanhedrin and the Jewish religious leaders to kill Jesus. And we read that therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there he remained with his disciples. So he moved away from the Jews and went to a place called Ephraim, where there were no Jews. Is that right? Well, if you know anything about what the Bible says, Ephraim is one of the names which is used for the northern kingdom of Israel in the Bible. It's the tribe of son of Joseph, actually. And so he went from one area where there were Jews in Judea, to another area where there were Jews in Ephraim, in the northern part. And that verse actually tells you very clearly that when John uses the word Jews, he's not talking about what we understand genetically all Jewish people. He's talking about particularly the Judeans and beyond that, the Jewish religious leaders. And the Jewish religious leaders really did want to kill him. That comes out. Uh, they were opposing Jesus. And because of their opposed opposition of Jesus... Jesus says that you are of your father the devil, and he is the father of lies, and he is a liar and a murderer from the beginning, uh, which is true. So there was a spirit of antichrist which was behind these Jewish religious leaders that wanted to oppose Jesus and ultimately wanted to put him on the cross. Uh, and at this stage in the gospel story, you have a conflict within Judaism and the Jewish people between Jews who were for Jesus and Jews who were against Jesus just like you have a conflict within every race of people who are against Jesus and those who are for Jesus, whether it's the English or the Chinese or the Koreans or whoever you are, you'll find people who are for Jesus and those who are against Jesus. At this stage, it's just a conflict within Judaism and the Jewish people, and it's actually of no interest to the Romans, unless it threatens their rule. And this comes out in the trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. When you come to the trial of Pontius Pilate, I've read Jewish writers who say, well, the, the Gospels actually whitewash Pilate to make him a good guy, as opposed to the Jews who are the bad guys. Now, the point is, at this point, when the trial comes up, John Pontius Pilate really doesn't know what it's all about. He doesn't want anything to do with it. Uh, he's a bit out of his comfort zone, if you like. And he doesn't want to get involved in this issue because he doesn't really understand it. And he says this. You can read it in John chapter 18, verse 13, 33. Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, "'Are you the king of the Jews?' Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered me, you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Judeans. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, You are a king then. Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I've come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? When he said this, he went out again and said, I find no fault in him. Uh, so if you study that carefully, Pilate 
really didn't understand what he was getting into. He needed a bit of explanation. Um, he didn't understand Jesus. As far as he was turned, Jesus was a rather uh, strange man who appears before him. He was talking in what he thought were religious rituals about truth. And he said, what is truth? And Jesus said, I'm the truth. I'm the one who's going to show you the truth. And this whole battle which we have today is a battle between the truth and the lies. And Jesus is the one who's going to bear witness to the truth. And he's the one who, because of that truth, was about to lay down his life as a sacrifice for the sin of the world. If you follow on, Caiaphas had to get Pilate on side uh, by saying that Jesus was claiming to be a king opposing Caesar and therefore a threat to Roman rule, which was a lie. Uh, but it was a way to get Pilate to agree to the condemnation and the crucifixion. So at this point, what I'm trying to tell you is that at this point it was an issue which was within the Jewish community. It didn't affect the Gentiles. In fact, they didn't understand it. Nevertheless, Pilate paid his part in putting Jesus on the cross. And in fact, the Romans actually did the job of killing Jesus. Never heard anyone say the Italians killed Jesus, but uh, the Romans actually did the job. Uh, basically, it was not just the Jews or the Gentiles, it was actually God who did, arranged for Jesus to die on the cross because that was his will, that Jesus should die as a sacrifice for the sin of the world at Jerusalem at the time of the Passover by crucifixion. In fulfillment of prophecies from Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and other passages in the Hebrew Scriptures. God was overruling to bring about the death of the Messiah by crucifixion at Jerusalem, therefore fulfilling the purpose of the suffering servant dying for the sin of the world and rising from the dead on the third day. So at this point, it did become an issue for the Romans. And from the development of Christianity as it spread out, goes out into the Greek and Roman world, and Gentiles become followers of Jesus. And as the Christian message goes out, it affects the Gentiles, including the Romans. And when you come to the epistles, you find that this comes out as well, and especially in the epistle of John, chapter 1 and chapter 2, uh, he talks about the spirit of Antichrist reappearing in, now in what developed out of the church. Uh, Jeremiah, John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, little children is the last hour. As you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, they were not of us, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Uh, so by this time, you've had churches which have contained Jews and Gentiles, and out of this uh, development of Christianity, you had many antichrists going out. So what does it mean? This is, in fact, the only passage in the Bible which speaks about the antichrist, by the way. <coughs> Elsewhere, he's called the man of sin or the beast uh, or other representations. But here he's called the Antichrist, and he says that you've heard that the Antichrist is coming. Many Antichrists have gone out, come, by which we know it is the last hour. Now, it wasn't quite the last hour, but now we're living, I believe, in the last hour, and many Antichrists are going out, preparing the way for the Antichrist. And John goes on to give you a definition of who is the Antichrist, who is Antichrist. In verse 22, he says, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, he is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So one of the tests which you will have about to know what is of the spirit of Messiah, of Christ, and the spirit of Antichrist is what do they say about the relationship between the Father 
and the Son? Do they deny that Jesus is the Son of God, the unique Son of God? Do they deny that there is a relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Or do they say there is one God and one God who is indivisible and who cannot be manifested as the Son in the person of Jesus, the Messiah? Uh, they deny Jesus is the Messiah, actually. Now, out of this is going to come a whole lot of false Christs and false prophets. Now, out of this come Antichrist religious systems, including Roman Catholicism, Islam, and other religions which deny, in some way, some of the truths which you find here in the scriptures, particularly the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as the one mediator between God and man. And other ones, or in the case of Islam, they demote Jesus from being son of God to being a prophet, and they take the, say that he didn't die on the cross, uh, someone like him was put on the cross, and Jesus was taken straight up to heaven uh, because he was too holy to be put on the cross, thereby ripping out the whole heart of the Christian message, the gospel. And they say that they've got the right message. Well, they haven't. Now, as you come to the end of days, which we're living in now, it says about many antichrists are going to go out. And from these many antichrists will come the antichrist, the beast or the man of sin, revealed in Revelation chapter 13. He will come to assault the people of God. He will come with power, which is given to him by the devil. And as we read in John, 4, John 8, 44, the devil is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. So where you see a spirit which is full of lies and which lead to murder, there you have the spirit of the Antichrist. Uh, do you see that working in some of the things which are happening in the world today? I'm going to show you how it is. And the coming Antichrist system is going to be typified by both lies and murder, and the people who know their God are going to stand for the truth, but they may be oppressed by them. On the one hand, they'll also be free from them in the spirit. Uh, I didn't know that Qon was going to speak about Daniel 11 this morning, but I've got a few verses from Daniel 11 to share on this passage. So let's look at one of them. Uh, Daniel 11, which in this passage, he's actually giving uh, a message about the coming of Antiochus Epiphanes, who was going to oppress the Jewish people in the time of the Maccabees. But Daniel 11, it connects Antiochus Epiphanes with the coming Antichrist. And it merges into the Antichrist. It has passages about the abomination of desolation, which you have in Matthew 24 and so on. Uh, so in Daniel 11, verse 32, it says, The people who know their God shall be strong and carry out, many, carry out great exploits. Those of the people who understand shall instruct many, and for many days they shall fall by the sword and the flame, by captivity and plundering. And when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join them by intrigue, some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is for the appointed time. In other words, at the end time, there's going to be a conflict between the people of God and the people of the devil, who are going to cause a, a fall by captivity and plundering, a fall by the sword and the flame. So the people of God will be subject to attacks from this Antichrist force. But those who know their God will be strong and we'll do exploits, we'll carry on for the Lord. And part of our purpose in giving you talks about prophecy is to help you to be strong in the time of the attack upon the word of God, upon the people of God, and to be strong for the Lord, to stand for him. And even if some fall and some suffer, they'll be picked up. And if you die for your faith, you're going to be going, taken straight up to heaven, so that's better than being here on the earth. So don't worry about it. Uh, might not like it, but I mean, that is the truth. So the Bible tells us that we actually were on the victory side, and if you're on the victory side, then you can be strong, 
and stand for the Lord in the face of all the antichrist forces which are coming against you. And that's what we need to do. And we need to be able to identify some of those antichrist forces. And ultimately, the people of God are going to be victorious at the second coming of Jesus. So we've got a hope within us, hope which will cause us hopefully to endure to the end, uh, to continue no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in. And we need to hold on to the truth as well as it's revealed in the scripture no matter what happens. We also need the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. And Jesus promised that he's going to give the Holy Spirit to his disciples so that we would know the truth and the truth will set us free. John chapter 14, speaking to the disciples in his last discourse before uh, the crucifixion, he tells them, those who have the truth will have the, Holy, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. So he says in verse 16, I will pray the Father, he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And today, right to the, up to this time, Jesus wants to come to us by the Holy Spirit, give us his spirit within us to direct us to the truth, uh, the truth in the word of God, and to guide us in the ways of the truth by following him. And if we have that spirit of truth, we're going to recognize the spirit of Antichrist. And one of the ways you'll recognize it is going to be responsible for lies, for propaganda, for deception, in the area of religion, of politics, of social structure, education, entertainment, whatever. And if you follow through the spirit of lies, it's always going to lead to suffering and oppression and ultimately to murder, killing and oppressing the people of God who stand in their way. Because the spirit behind it is the spirit of the Antichrist which comes from the devil. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul made this clear. In verse 7, where speaking about the last days, he says, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed. That's the beast or the Antichrist. The lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. For this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So here, speaking about the coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, uh, who is scheduled to come in the last days before Jesus returns to the earth. Uh, he's not here yet. Well, he may be here, actually. He may be around, but he's not revealed yet. Uh, he will be revealed in the last seven-year period, and he will take up his power uh, in the last days system. And he's going to come according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. In other words, he's going to be able to do things which appear to be supernatural, uh, which will deceive people. And people will be impressed by all this. And he caused deception which will come among the people who are about to perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So how are you going to be protected from the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of the beast, the spirit of deception? By receiving the spirit of the truth through being saved through faith in Jesus the Messiah. That's the way to know the truth, to know Jesus and to know his power, his spirit within you. Uh, God will send them the strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Do you see any strong delusions around us in the world today? <laughs> There's loads of them. 
And it seems that people are much more keen to follow something which is clearly a lie and a delusion than to follow the truth. Very unfortunate. Because if they follow the lie, they're going to be condemned or damned. We didn't believe the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Uh, Perhaps having pleasure in unrighteousness is one of the reasons why people don't want to receive the truth because they don't want to come out of their unrighteous, sinful life and to believe in Jesus. If you come to faith in Jesus, it's because you recognize that that old life, the life of sin, is not worth having because it's going to lead you to damnation and separation from God. So you repent and come out of it into a new life in Jesus. And so there's this lying spirit which comes upon those who reject the gospel. There's the truth that comes to those who receive it. Also, there's going to be persecution and suppression of the gospel. All the issues which we look at in these talks, behind them the battle between the Spirit of God, of the Messiah, and the Spirit of the anti-Messiah. Truth and lies, peace and war or murder. Now, I'm going to give you one or two practical situations now. How does it work out in what's happening in Israel, what's happening in the world, what's happening in the church? In all of those situations, you can see this battle taking place between truth and lies, between Messiah and anti-Messiah, between God and Satan. Let's have a look at the situation regarding Israel. Uh, There are two questions, one which I raised last week. One, do the Jewish people have the right to be in the land? Does the state of Israel have a right to exist? Two, Jewish people and the Messiah. Is the Messiah Yeshua who has come and is coming again? Or is there no Messiah? Or is the Messiah the Messiah who is going to come, but it hasn't come yet? Those are two issues which are before Israel at this present time. And behind those two issues is a battle, a spiritual battle between God and Satan. Now, I believe because the restoration of Israel is part of God's plan for the end of days, which fulfills prophecies, which you'll find in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, and Isaiah, Uh, which lines up with the covenant which God made with Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 15, that he give uh, the covenant deeds of ownership to the Jewish people, the descendants of Israel, upon that land of Israel, because they're back in the land in fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Therefore, there is a work of God in bringing this to pass, which means if God has brought it to pass, then the, the enemy of God, who is Satan, is going to be opposed to it. Uh, <coughs> And if you look at the enemies of the state of Israel today, the, the people who oppose Israel's right to exist, you'll find it is Islam, it's left-wing humanism, liberal humanism, quite a lot of Christian anti-Semitism, replacement theology. All those things come from God or from the other side. And within Israel, there's a religious spirit over the identity of the Messiah. You have the Orthodox who have their view of Messiah. You have the secular who have all sorts of new age and uh, rather dodgy ideas about spirituality. And you have a battle for truth and for the Bible in all of this question. And right now there is a call taking place in Israel for repentance and for faith coming from the Messianic Jewish community. In fact, today they began three days of prayer and fasting that God would move upon the land of Israel and upon the Messianic congregations to reveal the truth and to stand for the truth in the land of Israel. And we should stand with the Jewish believers in the land of Israel because they're the ones who can only bring a resolution to all of the conflicts both within and outside of Israel because they're pointing to the one who can do it, who is Yeshua, 
Jesus the Messiah. Put out a letter when I've got the uh, copy here. We did use it in the prayer meeting this afternoon. I've got a few copies if you want it, uh, giving the details of what they ask people to pray for. I'll read you one or two of them. It said, Our nation is passing through what could be the most crit- critical hour we've faced in our history since the establishment of the modern state in 1948. We're confronted with war on multiple fronts within and without the present borders of Israel. In finding a war in Gaza for months and have suffered great losses and casualties, whether it is the deaths and severe wounding of many of our civilians and soldiers, or the deaths and inhuman humiliations of many of our hostages. The unexpected invasion of Hamas on Shemeni Atzeret, that's the last day of Sukkot, and the invasion of our unprotected security barrier by thousands of terrorists resulted in the first nightmarish holocaust on the soil of Israel. This happened not by coincidence, one day after the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War in 1973, which also took Israel by surprise. The unprotected southern border of Israel was a reflection of an ominous spiritual reality that our spiritual gates were open and unprotected so that Satan could bitterly attack us because of sin in the land. That's quite an interesting and controversial statement. What he's saying is that actually Satan was allowed to make this attack because of the fact that we are not Israel, we're talking about Israel, we're not under the protection of God because of unrighteousness in the land of Israel. In other words, sin. Sadly, that's true. Um, <clears throat> goes on to speak about some of these things. He says, the sin in the land has opened spiritual gates for this present disaster to come upon our land and people, the divisions and enmity within the nation and its leadership, the hatred without cause, the shedding of innocent blood through abortion, the advocacy of immorality and sexual perversion, the idolatry and pride, the great sin of rejecting the sovereignty of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob over this land and its people have all worked to remove God's covering and blessing and a great measure of his protection from upon us. Otherwise, we have to pray for Israel, and as we pray for Israel, we don't just pray for their protection, we also pray that they might know God who is able to protect them and return to him. Interestingly, it says at the end, the Nova Party, that was the one, the party where the Hamas got through and killed all those young people who were dancing there, at which our youth were dancing around a large statue of Shiva, Hindu goddess, was reminiscent of the sin of the golden calf and a clear warning of the consequences. We do mourn with all those who have suffered and lost their loved ones at this event. So, the connection between what was happening and worshipping other gods. Uh, someone gave me this little neck, uh, wristband, which is apparently being handed out in the Jewish community, which says, we will dance again. Speaking about that. In other words, they haven't got the message. Let's have another dance. Let's have another party like we had on that day. That's the problem, not the solution. And we need to pray for Israel that they recognize that there is a spiritual problem which they need to get right. And that the devil is actually able to use this immorality, the new age, all the occultic and things which are taking place to take away the protection which is there from God because of his word. So there has to be a repentance of turning back to God. And the body of Messiah is actually meeting together right now to try to resolve that. So pray for those Jewish believers in the land of Israel that they might be able to break through in the heavenly realms and to also present uh, God's solution uh, to the Jewish people, to Israel at this time. 
Okay, one or two things about what's happening on the ground, so move away from the spiritual to the political. Uh, again, which does bring in certain spiritual realities, as we shall see. Uh, on the ground, Israel is actually making progress in Gaza at neutralizing the threat from Hamas. Uh, in Gaza City and the north of the Gaza Strip, Khan Yunis, they've accomplished uh, most of what they wanted to do by going where Hamas was hiding out and destroying them there. Uh, they've had to take action despite these locations being protected behind humanitarian facades. Schools, mosques, hospitals all served as human shields and most if not contained access to underground terror tunnels. Uh, so Israel actually went to great efforts to warn and protect civilians. They dropped leaflets and uh, made every practical method to warn people ahead of time that the IDF was coming in and thousands of people actually did flee away from the action. Uh, not many armies would do that. The IDF does because there is a moral dimension to the IDF in the way they fight the battles, which doesn't come out in the reporting we get. They're now moving into the southern part of Rafa, which you may have heard about, which there's a lot of uh, contention that they shouldn't go in there because there is a huge concentration now of Palestinian Arabs living in that area. Um, According to an IDF spokesman, they're going to move in towards the end of February, that's about now, should complete the high-intensity phase of the war against Hamas by early May. Uh, four battalions of Hamas need to be dismantled. They want to move the population in Rafa to designated areas which would be a kind of safe haven for this population. Uh, the Gazans actually wanted to move into Egypt, but Egypt won't allow them. Uh, Egypt's in a bit of a bind over the situation. One of the reasons for this is because there are a tremendous number of tunnels under the border between Egypt and Gaza Strip in the south. Uh, through those tunnels come weapons, ammunition, supplies, which have been smuggled through those tunnels for years. Ammunition which then turned into rockets which were fired against Israel. And these people actually want to destroy Israel. Egypt is supposed to have a peace treaty with Israel, so they should, in theory, be stopping these munitions going through. They're coming with help from Iran, which does want to destroy Israel. And Egypt is actually in a bind because they know that if uh, Israel does get through to the border, they'll find out a huge amount of the corruption which has been taking place coming from Egypt into the Gaza Strip, uh, including a great deal of smuggling, which has benefited financially the Egyptians and which will cause them to be severely embarrassed if that comes out. So you've got a lot of international pressure for a ceasefire which is actually being resisted by Israel at the present time. Their ambassador, Erdan, at the UN said, with a ceasefire in place, Hamas will regroup, rearm, and the next attempted genocide against the Israelis will be, only be a question of when, not if. Israel seeks a ceasefire, but if there's only one formula that we're willing to accept, all of our hostages must be released and Hamas must turn themselves in. So at the same time, you've now got a peace proposal. Uh, Biden administration's working on a plan to tie rapprochement between Israel and Saudi Arabia to steps to create a Palestinian statehood. Um, in fact, in my October, Light for Last Days, which came out before the war, I spoke about peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Uh, I put some ones on there. This was before the war, by the way, but it tells you about the negotiations taking place between Israel and Saudi Arabia for a peace agreement. Uh, apparently the Saudis are still interested in that peace agreement. Some people thought that this would 
turn the whole thing off, but it's still negotiations are ongoing. But just last week, there was a major conference in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia in which uh, Saudi plus Egypt plus Jordan plus uh, the Palestinian Authority all got together to discuss how they could bring about a peace agreement with Israel. Interestingly, Hamas is also trying to join in with the Palestinian Authority and have said that they will drop their um, opposition to the Palestinian Authority, which caused the war in Gaza, which you may not, may or may not remember, but did happen, which brought Hamas to power. Now they want to make an agreement with the Palestinian Authority and join with them in a united front to create a Palestinian government in the West Bank and in Gaza, uh, which is exactly what the Americans are now pushing on Israel. As far as Israel is concerned, they're not too happy about this. In fact, Netanyahu said no way. Uh, the problem from Israel's point of view is that if, particularly if Hamas joins, then they have an organization which would then be in government in the West Bank and in Gaza, which still has a plan or an ideology to destroy Israel. Uh, the Palestinian Authority, which is run by the old PLO organization called Fatah, actually dropped their uh, open desire to destroy Israel, but they never dropped their desire to destroy Israel to sign the Oslo Accords. Uh, the Oslo Accords said that there has to be an agreement between Israel and the Palestinian Authority uh, written down and agreed with them on borders, on all kinds of security issues before Israel needs to uh, accept a Palestinian state. What is being changed right now is that the Americans and our own government, David Cameron said this, are moving towards a position where they will promote a Palestinian statehood without such an agreement coming to pass. Uh, is there a problem with that? Certainly there is as far as Israel is concerned. In fact, it goes against the Oslo Accords agreement. The Oslo Accords said they have to have an agreement on every step along the way in which Israel is involved. Uh, the problem for Israel is that Hamas openly seeks to destroy Israel in its entirety and replace it with a Palestinian state, not just from the river to the sea, as you've heard that expression, but also from the north to the south. Uh, they said they want a, all of Palestine from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, from Rosh Anikra on the Israel-Lebanon border to Elat, Israel's southernmost city. In other words, the elimination of the state of Israel. So Israel has to make a peace treaty with people who want to eliminate it. Do you do that? Probably not. And Netanyahu has actually outlined a blueprint for post-war Gaza that calls for it to be administered by local Palestinian officials who are free from links to Hamas. And for Israel to continue to conduct security operations in the Strip indefinitely. Once a Israeli presence there, after the combat operations are ended, once a demilitarized Gaza with a buffer zone off limits to Palestinians around the border, and it wants some control of the Egyptian Gaza border. All of which are actually quite reasonable for Israel to have security in the future. But all of them actually put them in line for a major disagreement, not just with the Arabs and the anti Israel mob, but also with the United States, European Union, and the United Kingdom. We're all calling for the ceasefire and calling for Israel to uh, recognize a Palestinian state already. Now, behind all of this, you have to see that there is a spirit of lies 
which leads to murder. There's an Islamic saying which says, lies are sins except when rescuing a Muslim from a disaster. Um, one of the ways in which the establishment of the State of Israel is defined in Arabic is the Nakba. Nakba means disaster. So if the establishment of the State of Israel is a disaster, then you have to get rid of it and lies are sins except when rescuing a Muslim from a disaster like the State of Israel. Which means you can tell as many lies as you want because in the end your goal is a noble one to destroy the State of Israel. And Hamas has said Israel will exist until the Islamic movement succeeds in removing it. So the goals of Hamas, of Hezbollah, of Iran, and of the Houthis are the removement of the state of Israel. In which case, Jews are dead, Israel ceases to exist, and there's a second holocaust. Can you see who's behind that? You should be, you're a liar and a murderer from the beginning. It's the spirit of Antichrist. And that's manifested in all of these people. And it all fits in with the Bible. Jerusalem is going to be the burdensome stone. It is already the burdensome stone. That's what it says in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 2 says, Behold, I make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when there is siege against Judah and Jerusalem. To happen in that day, I'll make Jerusalem a very heavy stone or a burdensome stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. So you're seeing more and more that all nations, including apparently friendly nations like ours, are being gathered against Israel and against Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the burdensome stone. And in some ways, Israel is heading for a face where it stands alone against all these powers which are coming against them. Which case is hopeless, isn't it? But God moves in. And God has a purpose to preserve Israel until the coming of the Messiah, the second coming of Jesus. And the fact that all these things are happening is a sign that we're living in the last days before Jesus returns. The Bible tells us there's going to be this conflict in the last days and that it's a sign of the second coming of Jesus. So don't be surprised it's happening. <clears throat> and we all want peace. We have to acknowledge that the peace which is being proposed to Israel is actually based upon lies and deception. And it reminds us again of the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, which we read about in Daniel chapter 11, again, which Kuon read to us this morning. Daniel 11, verse 20, it says, There shall arise in his place one who opposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. In his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from him before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall enter peaceably, even into the richest places of the province. He shall do what his fathers have not done, or his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, the spoil, the riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. That's actually speaking about Antiochus Epiphanes, who came up against the uh, people of Israel in the days of the Maccabees, about 150, 165 BC. But the passage in Daniel merges in with the last days and with the coming of the Antichrist. Notice the two adverbs used here, peaceably and deceitfully. He comes in peaceably offering a peace treaty, but the peace treaty is actually deceitful, and it's going to lead to something which will be not peace. 
will come against the people of God in a deceitful way, offering a false peace. The plans may prevail for a time, but they will fail in the end. Another verse in that passage says, uh, Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil. They shall speak lies at the same time, same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end will be at the appointed time. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he should do damage and return to his own land. Uh, speaking lies at the same table, two forces. Actually, in the passage, it's the king of the north and the king of the south. That's the king of Syria and the king of Egypt. They speak lies at the same table, but they come in then against Israel. So you've got these two powers speaking lies at the same table and then coming against Israel. I think it all ties in with what's happening now. You've got big powers coming together and talking, having conferences, uh, speaking peaceably, speaking about peace, but behind it there's a spirit of deceit. They want to come in and destroy Israel. Deception and a false peace, which leads to a time of trouble affecting Israel and the Jewish people worldwide, but is parallel also to the Great Tribulation, which you read about in Matthew chapter 24, which precedes the second coming of Jesus. Jeremiah tells us, but he shall be saved out of it. He'll be saved out of it by the intervention of the Lord. Now, some people say that this has got nothing to do with what's happening today, but I think it has everything to do with what's happening today because it all fits in. And you can see these forces arising. It's all being put into place. Now, it's interesting. We had a little bit of a shindig here in London at Parliament about all of this. Uh, I don't know if you followed this. There was a big row in Parliament this week, uh, which they had a debate about the ceasefire. Uh, the Speaker apparently changed the rules of the debate about Gaza. Uh, some say to keep Labour happy. Uh, but also, he said it was to save parliamentarians. And when you look behind the scene, if he's correct in this, there's something very sinister which happened on that day. Uh, why did, what are you talking about saving parliamentarians? Well, those who oppose the ceasefire deal, those who vote against it, actually put themselves in danger. They face death threats. Uh, and you've seen behind the demonstrations taking place a lying, violent spirit in the anti-Zionist movement. Our own MP here, Mike Freer, is actually resigning because he's had enough of all the death threats he's having because of his stand on Israel. Uh, Tobias Elwood, who was a conservative MP in the south coast somewhere, uh, he voted against one of these ceasefire agreements and he had a mob of anti-Israel protesters around his house uh, threatening him and his family. And so MPs are frightened to vote in these elections. Uh, an MP called Andrew Percy, who is pro-Israel, spoke the following day and he said, if we have a rerun of the debate held yesterday, we would have exactly the same thing happening. Members will not vote with their hearts because they are frightened. Because the threats we're receiving telling us to leave this country, in some of our cases telling us they want us and our families to be subject to pain and to death. Last night, the genocidal call from the river to the sea will be free was projected onto the Houses of Parliament. A call saying that no Jew is welcome in the state of Israel. Uh, can you see what's happening there? It, parliamentary representatives are afraid because they're being threatened if they vote the wrong way, that they're going to be, have their lives taken. Is that a bit of a threat to our democracy? I would say so. And you've got forces of violence being unleashed, which are anti-Christ, anti-Israel, full of spirit of lies, 
and even of murder. It's happening here. It's even worse in France and in Europe. Apparently, there was a survey done recently about, which said that 17% of Muslims in France say they hate Jews. 39% they have a very bad opinion of Judaism. France is the only country in the 21st century Europe where Jews have regularly been murdered simply because they are Jews. When it comes to Israel, the results are even worse. 45% uh, of French Muslims say they want the total destruction of Israel. The equivalent number of French Muslims define massacre, rape, torture, beheadings, and burning alive of Jews by Hamas terrorists on October the 7th as an act of resistance. Um, other figures show that 42% of French Muslims place respect for Islamic Sharia law above respect for the laws of the French Republic. Percentage rises to 57% among young Muslims aged 18 to 25. Uh, Sharia law stipulates that Allah has dictated all the laws that human beings, whether Muslim or not Muslim, must obey, and all the rules contrary to the Sharia law must be rejected. Survey showed that 49% of French Muslims want Christians to convert to Islam, 36% want churches to be transformed into mosques. Some churches have already been transformed. A Catholic priest called Jacques Hamel had his throat slit while he was be and beheaded in saint Etienne du rouvray in Normandy while he was saying Mass in an almost empty church. France also happens to be the country where there are the largest number of no-go zones. These are 751 designated zones or bains sensibles, which means sensitive urban zones where Muslim gangs and radical Islam imams are in charge. Non-Muslims can live there on condition they accept the status of dhimmis or second-class citizens bow their heads and admit that they're living in a territory ruled by Muslims. Muslim gangs no longer respect the police. In such situation, Jews and Christians generally hide their identity for fear of being assaulted. That's just across the channel. Similar situation to that of France can be found in other West European countries where Muslim population may be smaller, but is quickly growing. There are Shari-controlled zones in Germany, emerging in Belgium, Sweden, Netherlands, uh, in 2015, an Algerian writer called Boulam Sansal wrote in a novel called 2084, The End of the World, described a totalitarian future in which Muslim extremists establish an oppressive caliphate where freedom of thought and action is abolished. Uh, it says, France will be Islamist, Europe too. The former head of Germany's domestic intelligence agency, the Federal Office for the Protection of the Constitution, said in the recent interview, Europe will succumb to Islam. Uh, a pretty devastating idea. Now, I'm not sure it's quite as bleak as that, but there are certainly forces out there which want to change our society. Are they being motivated by the spirit of Christ or Antichrist? Think by the spirit of Antichrist. Are they being fed by lies or by truth? Think by lies. Are they leading to peace or to murder and to conflict? Can you see it's the same battle that's taking place here? It's taking place around the world. Now, what we need actually is for our leaders to make a stand for Christianity, for decent culture or values which have been largely shaping European society for good, particularly Christianity. Are they going to do that? No. 
If you denounce anything like this, you're going to be denounced as an Islamist, Islamophobic, or as a racist, or as being far right. But under this conservative government, the UK has made great advances in imposing what I call the Marxist diversity agenda with critical race theory that denounces tradi uh, traditional European society or British society as racist, homophobic, Islamophobic, and itself is being taken over by a kind of reverse racism against white people. Now, I think hopefully you know that I'm definitely no, not racist. I believe that everybody is right in the sight of God and we should accept everybody for what they are. But I am deeply disturbed by what I call the reverse anti-white racism, which I see coming about through political correctness in our time. Uh, recently, there was a statement by the Wildlife and Countryside Link, which has 80 members' organizations, made this claim last week to Parliament on racism and its influence in the natural world. The report said, quote, cultural barriers that reflect in the UK it is white British cultural values that have embedded into the design and management of green spaces in the countryside and into society's expectations of how people should engage with them. Racist colonial legacies that frame nature as a white space create further barriers, suggesting that people of color are not legitimate users of green spaces. Uh, now, if people of color don't feel they can go into the countryside, that is a bad thing. But he's saying here that cultural barriers uh, say that uh, these areas are uh, white British cultural values have been embedded into the design or management of the countryside. Now, is that because they're terribly wicked and they put just white people there? Or is it because for the last 2,000 years or more, only white people have lived in the countryside? I'm sorry to say that. I mean, that's not being discriminated, just talking about historical facts. There have been different tribes. There have been Celts, there have been Saxons, there have been Normans, and different tribes who've lived there but they're all white. And it's only in recent times that any non-white people have come in large numbers into our country. So it's natural that in the countryside you should have predominantly white values. It's not something sinister, it just happens to be, but apparently it's all wrong. Also, some form of Christianity has been the dominant or even the sole religion in those areas. It's just how it is. And it's interesting that the... Uh, former Home Secretary, who's Suella Braverman, who's actually of Indian origin, said, this view is not just wrong but dangerous. We need to stop making white people feel guilty for being white. And I agree with that, in the interests of good race relations. Now, British cultural values are embedded into the countryside. Well, as I say, for the past thousands of years, only white people have lived there. Um, apparently, this is a racist colonial legacy. Actually, if you look at history, actually the Normans were racist against the Saxons when they came in after 1066, after William the Conqueror. They discriminated against them. Um, but it wasn't white racism against blacks. It was one tribe, the invading one, dominating and impressing the other, pressing the other one, the Saxon one. Eventually, intermarriage and development became one people, and you can't tell now who has Norman or Saxon ancestry. But there were no black or Asian or Chinese people there that was just history. Now we've got this obsession now with diversity, which is actually very unhealthy. Now I'm all in favor of people from all races coming here and living together and we love everybody, whatever you come from. But if you start rewriting history and deleting whole periods of our history and culture, then actually it's very dangerous and it's gonna cause a lot of resentment 
and actually cause itself conflict and bad race relations. And I would say what's become the woke ideology, including the imposition of LGBT and all that stuff on all levels of society, is actually part of a Marxist plan to change our existing society to one which will be shaped by their ideology. And fundamentally, that's anti-Christian. It does nothing to improve human rights, help poor white or black communities. It doesn't diminish racism. In fact, it increases racial conflict. It creates unhealthy white guilt on one hand, but also anger and resentment, leading to increased prejudice and hostility where it does exist among some white people. But also increases hostility to white people among non-whites, none of which is healthy and none of which is desirable. One thing which is desirable is we recognize we're all one in Christ Jesus and that God loves us all and we have unity through faith in Jesus. But this imposed unity by diversity actually ends up doing the opposite of what it wants. And having come from the far left myself before I became a Christian, I recognize there is behind it an agenda, an agenda which is to change our society and to bring it into line with one which they are in favor of, which ultimately comes from an ideology which is based on lies and which leads ultimately to murder. Oppression, as you've seen in the communist world. Okay, that's maybe a bit controversial, but I think that you've got this situation happening in this part of the world, which is part of the Antichrist agenda. And it's set to pit people against each other. Whereas God actually wants to bring us together and to recognize that we all love each other because we're all one in Christ Jesus. Okay, let's move on. Let's just say a little bit a word about Russia and Ukraine. If you want to see a bit of activity of the lies and the murder, just look at what's happening in that part of the world. Uh, Russia, as you know, invaded Ukraine, got bogged down in a war which they hoped was going to end in three or four days, and has now just reached its second year, or its third year, of taking place. Ukraine war has entered its third year. Ukrainians are actually facing quite a difficult situation now. They're running out of soldiers and ammunition. Had heavy casualties at the hands of the Russian forces and sickness as a result of long periods in terrible conditions. Russians have lost even more people. And there's a lack of equipment with it to fight the Russians as military support from the West slows down despite pleas for more from the Ukrainian president, Zelensky. Uh, now, there are a lot of arguments about right and wrong in this situation. Um, there's the story that Boris went to uh, Zelensky and offered him uh, more weapons, which uh, when they were actually working on a peace treaty and instead of working for peace, they then carried on the war, which may be true. I'm not sure it's wholly true. In fact, I'm sure it's not wholly true. I think that there is Russian spin on that, which they're using to put the blame for the war on the West. But there is a huge propaganda war which is taking place and there's evidence of Russian propaganda infiltrating at every area in our society, causing support for Ukraine to weaken. And it's interesting that right now we have a kind of rather strange situation in which the alt-right, the Trump supporters, apparently now pro-Putin. Um, I don't know if anyone followed the interview which Tucker Carlson made with Mr. Putin the other week, which was quite a... Uh, new development. Tucker Carlson is part of the kind of criticism of the things which we're critical of, of the uh, New World Order, of uh, some of the globalist aspirations, sort of things I read about in Light for the Last Days, which I read about 
in the last one here about the conspiracy or chaos, things which uh, I'm against. But we're finding that a lot of the people who are against these things are turning out now to be pro-Putin and pro-Russia. How can that be? Well, because actually the World Economic Forum, European Union are all for Zelensky. So under the principle that my enemy's enemy is my friend, those who are against the World Economic Forum, as I am, uh, are now pro-Putin because he's against them as well, which is a kind of wrong logic, in fact. Uh, and there's a power of deception. I read through Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson's interview. Basically, it was a whitewash for Putin. Um, said that uh, they were the victims of neo-Nazis in Ukraine, Western imperialists trying to break up Russia, uh, which is very far from the truth. Uh, he gave a history lesson in which he didn't mention one of the most important things about Russia's relationship with Ukraine, which probably you may not be aware of, which was in the 1930s, uh, Stalin starved Ukraine uh, in what was known as the Holodmor, which he took all the grain out from Ukraine to Russia because he'd made a mess of his own agricultural setup. And about a million Ukrainians died in that starvation. That's why they're not too keen on being ruled from Moscow. Uh, he also left out the reason why Ukraine wants to be free from Russian interference. And when I read this, I, I sort of thought about that quote we just read from Daniel. Both these kings shall be bent on evil. They shall speak lies at the same table. I felt that was what was taking place there. The real reason Ukraine wants to be free from Russian interference and every country which has once been, had the misfortune to be controlled by whoever's in power in Moscow or St. Petersburg is Russia's history of imperialism, very bad incompetent totalitarian government, whether under the Tsars or the communists or the Putin government, all of which is backed by an anti-Christian ideology. The Tsars by the Russian Orthodox Church, which is actually very anti-Christian, anti-evangelical Christian, anti-Semitic, and the communists, which are openly anti-Christian, anti-God, and Putin, who is, has his no, now his own version of anti-Christianity. Putin recently passed something called the Yerovaya Law, uh, which gives the right for the Russian Orthodox Church to exist, but severely restricts all other Christian groups, including evangelical Christians, tells them they can't preach the gospel outside their churches, uh, and limited what they can say inside their churches and places on them exactly the same kind of rules which the Soviet communists put on the church to prevent the freedom of religion. Putin's just put that into power. But the Russians are now putting that into power in Ukraine in the passes they've taken, place, they've taken over. They're now suppressing all the non-Russian Orthodox uh, forms of religion in the parts of Ukraine where they're ruling. You've got the spirit of the lies and the Antichrist. It's all working together, working together through Russia and the Soviet Union. They're not the Soviet Union, the, the Putin and his form of religion. And it's clear to me that Putin is actually turning Russia back to the kind of Stalin-type dictatorship. Uh, next week there's going to be an election in Russia in which Putin's going to win because he's the only candidate. <laughs> One way to do it. And all the opposition are either dead or in prison. And we read about Alexei Navalny, uh, who recently died in prison in the Arctic Circle. Uh, Navalny is a good guy. Uh, he, apparently he, was an, he is an atheist. He was an atheist. But I'm told that at the end of his life he did come to believe in God. And whether he came to saving faith in 
Jesus, we pray that he did, because he was a really good guy. He exposed some of the corruption within Russia. He made a video which I saw of Putin's palaces and all the massive wealth which they've siphoned off from the Russian people, uh, giving themselves huge mansions all over the place, while the average Russian lives in most squalid conditions in their towns and villages. <coughs> and so you have this lies and murder coming together. Now, interestingly, Putin did sold out some idea of a settlement with Tucker Parson in the interview, possibly involving Ukraine giving up east, the east of the country and Crimea. Moment Zelensky is not interested in that, but I can see that's going to be pushed in the coming days. And there'll be a push towards a peace settlement, uh, which will benefit Russia and be against the Ukrainians. And one has to say that Russia's up to all kinds of bad stuff in Africa. I did have a whole lot of information given to me. I have not time to go into it now. I may give it to you next week. But uh, about Russia's activity, especially in West Africa, in Burkina Faso and other countries, where they're pushing for coups, which are putting themselves in power, and they're then exploiting African countries for mineral resources uh, and acting in a very harmful way, involved also in conflicts in Sudan, Libya. And I can't help wondering whether this is all preparing the way for Gog and Magog, where it says that Russia is going to lead an alliance of nations, including Persia, Turkey, and some countries which are clearly from Africa coming against Israel in the latter days. Who knows? I'm not going to be too dogmatic on that, but we can see that there is this kind of force taking place there. Uh, which is leading us to the end of days. And behind it, you can see this the same spirit of lies and murder, the Antichrist forces. Pretty much the same happening in the Western world. I won't go into this in too much detail. I think the time's going on, but I'll just skip over some of this. We've got uh, elections taking place all over the world, including in UK, United States, European Union. United States one is interesting. You've got Trump versus Biden. Uh, Biden who can perhaps hardly spend two words together and doesn't know what day of the week it is. And Trump who seems to be sometimes a bit deranged and wonders where he's going to take them to. Uh, but behind it, there's also a big conflict in the United States between what you call the nationalist, make America great group who tend towards some quite extreme right wing policies, want to stop uncontrolled migration versus the extreme left uh, with the Black Lives Matter, the critical race theory, pushing LGBT policies, anti-family policies, leading to a breakdown of order in the cities and migration out of control. Uh, Biden victory would be a nightmare for the right and a Trump victory was seen as a nightmare for the globalists, the Davos crowd and the progressives. In fact, it's interesting that at the last Davos summit, uh, John Kerry, who was definitely on the kind of anti-Trump left-wing group, said that if Trump wins, they've got certain legal things which are already in motion which will prevent him from doing anything that would be too harmful to their program, which tells me that behind the scenes in all these things you have globalist politicians who are controlling strings. Well, how is it going to work out? Um, Interestingly, I saw a clip of Trump actually at one of his rallies last week uh, in Pennsylvania where he spoke to the Association of Christian Communicators 
He said he would protect God in the public space, appoint federal task force to fight anti-Christian bias. He concluded that, quote, to achieve victory, just like in the battles of the past, we need the hand of our Lord and the grace of Almighty God. So is he serious? Or is it just a device to get the Christians on site? But if he's serious, then that's good news. But that kind of raises the fury of the opposition in the States, and you're going to hear anyone from the left saying that. And one of the things you see in America is that the left-right split is so great that there's a danger even of civil conflict, uh, which could come about in this coming year. You've got a legal onslaught against Trump opponent from his opponents, and you're going to get a corresponding reaction from his supporters. It's pretty clear to me that Biden's not up to it, so is he a puppet being controlled by the deep state? I think probably is, by globalist forces. And all of this is, again, part of this conflict between God and Satan, Antichrist and Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that Trump's a good guy, but I think he's probably better than Biden, actually. But he's definitely been good for Israel. But the claims are also that the election may be rigged. There may be a danger of a financial meltdown energy shortages resulting in the New Green Deal, from the New Green Deal, and a push for the central bank digital currencies and surveillance tools to seize money from the opposition to the globalist agenda, which would cause a new form of tyranny to take place there in the United States. Some pretty similar issues here in the UK, but it's not quite so divided. Many people say it's a foregone conclusion that Labour will win with a big majority. Um, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, but I would say that that will probably mean more of the woke agenda and more of the opposition to biblical Christian values. And in general, we've got a feeling in this country, I think, and in much of Europe, that the politicians don't really work for our interests. You ever feel like that? That they're serving somebody else. They're not interested in looking after the people, which is leading to a reaction um, now, Starmer himself actually went to the Davos summit and he was thrilled with it. And he's pro, 100% pro the World Economic Forum agenda. So just watch out for that one. Um, because I believe if that comes to pass, we're going to be more and more controlled by anti-Christian forces and it'll lead to some kind of uh, difference in the way we run. You've got similar things happening in Germany, in Europe, I uh, won't go into all the details, but there's going to be a, there's a conflict now taking place, uh, especially in Europe, uh, over things like the farming issue. And you're seeing potential for some kind of a, a conflict taking place in the coming years. If you follow this through, it's likely that this is going to lead to some kind of antichrist government, fall of democracy, either with a financial crash, war some kind of civil unrest. Either way, there are many ways in which I see our society pushing towards the fulfillment of Revelation 13, Antichrist in power, and some kind of controlled system through the powers of darkness ruling, which we need to stand against and resist, but know that it is, it's around. And we need to be recognized what are the Antichrist forces working in our society. Okay, let's conclude just a few things about the religion. Uh, do you see Antichrist forces working within 
the church, for sure. Uh, church of England, you see in many ways unbelievers ruling. Uh, you've got the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, now, I'm not a Roman Catholic, and I think there are things fundamentally wrong with the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, fundamentally, going right back to the beginning. But there are certain truths which the Roman Catholic Church does uphold and has upheld, particularly in relation to biblical sexual morality. And all these are being undermined at this present time. Uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, a group of 90 Catholic clergymen, scholars and authors have published a joint letter to all cardinals, bishops of the Catholic Church, urging them to oppose the Vatican document approved by Pope Francis that allows priests to bless same-sex unions for the first time. In the letter, Catholic conservatives say that the Fiducia Supplicans, a Vatican doctrine released on December the 18th and signed by the Pope, will lead to the blessing of objectively sinful relationships. They add that the cardinals and bishops should forbid immediately the application of this document in your diocese and ask directly the Pope to urgently withdraw this unfortunate document which is in contradiction with both scripture and the universal and uninterrupted tradition of the church. Now, they are talking here about things we agree with. And there's a website called uh, LifeSite News, which I get information from, which is Roman Catholic, which actually says a lot of things which I agree with wholeheartedly. And some of them actually go so far as to say that the Pope may be the Antichrist. Uh, now, I wouldn't go that far, but certainly there is a movement within Roman Catholicism, a division between Roman Catholicism. But the ruling powers are moving very much towards the uh, liberal leftist acceptance of gay rights and all that stuff. Strife over doctrine and elements of truth being overturned by the current trend by the Pope. Now, there's an American writer called Jan Markell. Uh, got this off her website. She said, Pope Francis is revealing himself to be a blatant Marxist. He's pulled back from issues Catholics have considered sacred. Apparently, he's replaced abortion with social justice and environmentalism. Most troubling, however, is his call for a new world order, that, there's a the, that there'd be a global constitution, a global court, and a one-world government. Scripture is clear that the Antichrist will be the head of the one-world government. Roger Oakland, a former Catholic, writes, according to Bible prophecy, a one-world religion that will offer the promise of peace throughout the world is going to commence prior to Christ's return. To most, this global body will seem like a wonderful thing and very possibly will be pseudo-Christianity coming in the name of Christ. However, contrary to how the masses will view it, it will actually help establish and set up the Antichrist and his one-world government. It's quite a radical statement, but he's saying that behind some of the influences in the church, there is an antichrist spirit which is moving us towards the antichrist uh, agenda. I notice for all this to happen, all religions must come together in an ecumenical plan. They must also come in peaceably. So those two things we saw earlier from Daniel, they come in peaceably and deceitfully, and they come in against biblical values and biblical truth. Meanwhile, the Church of England has found a way to replace dwindling congregations. It's good news, isn't it? A disco was held in Canterbury Cathedral on the 8th of February, but attended by 3,000 people. The UNESCO World Heritage Site was fitted with bars, strobe lighting, and 90s music played all night long. The church plans to hold more events in the cathedral over the coming months, which they say is an attempt to evangelize people. The event has been deemed profane by Kajitan Skorovsky, 
who organized a petition against it, he said the sacred cathedral is a sacred building, should not be used for discos with alcohol and profane lyrics being played. He had a meeting with the Dean of Canterbury Cathedral, at which the Dean said it was a way to get some money in for the church. He also said, look, I'm not naive, I know it's not going to evangelize people. But he felt forced to justify it, saying it was good for a, on a community outreach level. I don't think anyone is buying that, it's not going to bring people to church. People who went to the disco aren't going to turn up on Sunday for the service. Apparently this is a growing trend. There have been discos taking place in cathedrals and historic buildings around the UK and Europe. Uh, apparently Reverend Jessica Fellows told BBC Newsbeat, I love the idea of people dancing on a Saturday night, praying on a Sunday morning. I think we can do both. The disco-loving vicar is a self-proclaimed Harry Styles fan who uses her church to organize silent discos as well as beer and carol events. The more the merrier. We need people to come in and have fun. It's not all boring and serious, she says. The church is meant to be a creative place. We, can think, we think we could host more silent discos or places where people could connect. I'm not sure how you have a silent disco. I think you have headphones on, so you, it doesn't actually blast into the building. But anyway, it's the same thing. You're still ringing the same music. music. You never know, they might ask some big questions about who God is, and what I'd that's what I'd love to see happen. So if you have a disco inside the church, they're going to start asking questions about God, which they won't ask if they go to a disco in a disco. It looks like you're a bit skeptical about that. Uh, <laughs> uh, if you know your history, you may know that Canterbury Cathedral is famous for the 12th century murder of Archbishop Thomas a Becket by King Henry's Knights, which was made into a play by T.S. Eliot called Murder in the Cathedral. The issue actually was Becket's defense of the rights and privileges of the church and of the Saxons who were being oppressed by the Normans, I said about that earlier, against the power of the secular state headed by the monarch. So it was about the defense of the church against the secular state. So now you have the church inviting the secular world into itself. It's imposing itself upon a hapless church that has abandoned the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's actually opening itself up to the powers of darkness. You don't get people to come to church by, to hear the gospel by putting on concerts with rock music and alcohol and dancing. The only answer is to preach the authentic gospel. And if they don't like it, tough. That's the only message we have to bring people to God. We have to call people inside and outside the church building to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for our sins, was buried and rose again on the third day. Some ways I would say that what happened in Canterbury Cathedral on 8th of February is another murder in the cathedral, potentially more serious than the one which happened on the 29th of December, 1170. It's actually bringing the devil into the church, which leads to the death of Christianity. And the C of E hierarchy seems pretty keen on bringing this to pass. If you sum up all these things I've spoken about, they're signs of the Antichrist force working within the church within the world, and within Israel. He's a liar and a murderer from the beginning. In all cases, the answer is Jesus. He's the truth. He's the way, the truth. He's the one way he can bring us to life. He's the one who bears witness to the truth. The Bible is the word of God, which is the truth. It's the one defense we have against all of this stuff which is coming in the world. If people don't like it, that's their choice. They'll have to stand before God on one day and and give account of their lives and tell them why they have rejected Jesus Christ. 
We want to bring people to repentance and faith so that they will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and so that on the day of judgment they can stand before God with confidence and say, I'm saved through the blood of the Lamb, through the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for me, to redeem me, to bring me to God. The answer is Jesus. And there's a huge battle for truth going on in the world outside. Battle with the lies of the devil. Battle for peace with God and with our neighbour, which can only come through faith in Jesus Christ. In a world of violence and fear. And as we see all these things happening in the world today, they're all signs actually of the second coming of Jesus. So what should you do? You could panic. You could hide in your little room and not go out and hope it's all going to blow over. Or you can trust in the Lord who is greater and believe in the Lord Jesus and live for him and be prepared to speak for him and to say that you believe in Jesus, that he's the answer. Because he is the only answer. Don't be afraid and don't be despondent because Jesus is the one who is going to bring the final answer. Conclusion few verses which I often conclude with Jesus said they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory when these things begin to happen look up lift up your heads because your redemption draws near Jesus is coming not this time as the suffering servant but this time as king of kings and lord of lords with all the power of God at his disposal when these things begin to happen and they have begun to happen don't panic don't give up don't despair but look up your redemption is drawing near. Sooner or later, Jesus is going to come and sort it all out. Meantime, we've got a job to do. When these things begin to happen, they have begun. So what should we do? We should flee the wrath to come. There is a wrath coming. God is pretty angry about these things I've just been telling you about. Uh, sometimes I feel angry about them, but God is even more so when he sees the suffering and he sees the injustice and he sees the wickedness which is visited on so many people in this world he sees the lies and the hypocrisy especially of people in power who are abusing their positions to oppress and to destroy life and I wouldn't like to be in Mr. Putin's shoes when he stands before God on the day of judgment we all have to recognize that we live in a fallen world and that fallen world is under the wrath of God and sooner or later Jesus is going to come and sort it out bring an end to it and bring in a good new old order when Jesus reigns and rules from Jerusalem in the time we call the millennium, the thousand years before he wraps up this world and creates a new heavens and a new earth for all those who believe in him and are redeemed through the blood of the Lamb. So what should we do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Put your trust in him, live for him and know that in him you've got the victory. And that whatever happens between now and our death or between now and the second coming, we have one inside of us who is greater than all the powers of darkness. Uh, John, 1 John, it says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. There's a greater power in you, one little believer in Jesus. And you might think you're a pretty feeble and insignificant person. But if you have Jesus in you, you've got a greater power than all the power that's in the world. Because Jesus has overcome the bad power, the power of the devil, by dying for us and rising from the dead. And he's alive today, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. And soon he's going to come back in power and glory and judge the world in righteousness. So look up, lift up your heads, your redemption draws near, Jesus is coming. Praise the Lord.
Let's just have a word of prayer, then we'll sing our final hymn. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope we have in Jesus. And as we see all the terrible things happening in the world today, help us, Lord, to look up and to put our trust in you and to know that in this battle between truth and falsehood, between God and Satan, you are the victor and you're the one who's going to have the last word. And we do pray for Israel, Lord. You'll protect them from their enemies. Pray that you'll save them from those who come to kill and maim and destroy. We pray also you'll save them from that spiritual enemy and cause them to turn away from things of the world which are not good and to turn to the one way of salvation through Yeshua the Messiah. And we pray for ourselves that you'll strengthen us. We pray for your church that you'll purify the true church of Jesus Christ. Make it strong to stand in these last days and to give your word of life to the people round about us. We pray all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.